Joshua 24. We're going to start in verse 1 read down to verse 13. Today we have sang to the Lord with our hearts, singing and worship. Spend time praying, asking God to intervene in our lives and in the lives of other people. We watched as people were baptized in the waters that say, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now we continue worship by opening His Word and we read it. Reading the Bible is an act of worship. And then we talk, what does God say to us in His Word? That's where we've come to. I'll call your attention to Joshua 24. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there in verse 1. You follow along. <clears throat> Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord your God, or the, the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob, his children, went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought out your fathers of then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea, and when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. You took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. Indeed, he, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. You went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land in which you didn't labor and cities that you had not built. You dwell of them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you didn't plant. Father, we thank you. You've saved us. We rejoice in that grace. There are sons and daughters, your sons and daughters, standing here that need healing. 
We've come on the Lord's day to the fountain of life and asking you for it. There's sons and daughters that need renewed joy. God, you've brought people into our midst now that stand condemned, stand condemned. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that when the gospel is heard, the Spirit will apply it to their hearts. So, Lord, we sit and wait in need for grace. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've come to a solemn occasion, Joshua 24, come to a solemn occasion in the people of God. You see it in verse 1, all the important people are there, the judges and the officers and the elders. And the text says in verse 1 that they present themselves before God. Not completely alike, but similar to what we do on the Lord's Day. We gather together with men and women of all walks of life that we have absolutely nothing in common with except we are sinners saved by grace and we come and present ourselves to God. They've come there this day to stand before their old leader. There is a seismic change, a shift. Joshua is going to walk them through the remarkable history of their grace. There's a shift happening here. The age of the patriarchs is over. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They all talk about the same amount of time. And then you get up to the promised land. Joshua, the book of Joshua, takes over. They walk into the land. Joshua is going to die, and there's a shift. And so what does Joshua do? He rehearses the history with them. You start in about verse 1 or so, verses 1 through 4, he talks about all of the patriarchs. And then verses 5, 6, and 7, he condenses the Exodus down. Twelve chapters of Exodus, he does it in verses 5, 6, and 7. Get to chapter, uh, get to verse 8, verses 8 through 10, he starts to talk about the victories. And then in verse 11 and 12 and 13, he moves their attention to the last conquest they've settled in and puts their eyes on the future. And in each step along the way, Joshua seems to be reminding the people of God of what God has brought them through. And he pauses here for the people to catch their breath, collect themselves, like some of you need to do, and right now, remember God's good grace to you. Thursday was Veterans Day. We celebrated it here at Hickory Grove. We, our offices were closed, our school was closed, uh, nothing going on here at Hickory Grove except a deacon's meeting. Called to have a deacon's meeting on Veterans Day. So we came up here, um, had, to ha had to have it done for the budget. So we came up here Thursday afternoon, sat in my office for a little while before the deacon's meeting and started going through some of my journals. I have prayer journals that reach back into my own life, 25, almost 30 years. And as I was sitting there reading there, 
re reading those journals, I was reminded of God's provision throughout my own personal history of God walking me through very difficult situations. Sometimes there were times when Connie and I were first married, we didn't know how we'd make ends meet. How God provides. And, and that's what Josh was doing here with the people. He, he's stopping and he turns their head, like you need to turn your head back and look and see how God has provided. 13 verses, what I've just read to you, 21 times you have a description of God acting on behalf of his people. It reminds us what God said to the Apostle Paul when he suffered so bad, asked for the thorn to be removed, and God said to him, my grace is sufficient. So just for a few moments, I want to take this passage and I want to ask God to fill your minds with grace because a mind filled with grace will be occupied with God. And some of you have been preoccupied with something far too long. I want your mind and heart filled with grace. This passage is about God's grace. Let's do what we always do. Let's go through it and walk through the passage and see what we can find. Here's the first one, number one. What do we know about grace? Grace demolishes a bad past. What you got back there in your past? You come to the cross of Jesus and there when you are forgiven, that past is demolished. Look, I'm thankful for that right there. When you get past verse 1, we know the elders and the leaders are standing there. The speech begins in verse 2. And look how he starts out. The first person he starts to talk about is the man named Abraham, who is the Jewish hero. He has been idolized and lionized. We even have songs that reach down to this day that we're children of Abraham. And here in the passage, what does Joshua tell us about Abraham? Let's go and see. Verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, here comes the history. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, Abraham had another brother not mentioned here, Nahor, and they served other gods. They were pagans. You're going to hold up Abraham like you ought to be like him? Don't forget now. It wasn't that Abraham was such a great man. What we find in the Bible is that Abraham believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. But before that, you're not going to believe the stuff they did, practicing divination and necromancy and worshiping idols. There's no telling the terrible things in Abraham's past. You got anything like that? You ever cuss? I asked this question at the 8 o'clock. Um, you ever cuss? There's a family at home watching because of COVID. They're watching our service and texted me on the way to uh, Mallard Creek and said, look, you said that. And my son, the family and children there, my son asked, Dad, what does cuss mean? So he said, it's 
Well, let's just say a bad word. So the little boy said, oh, I've heard mom do a cuss. <laughs> Instant conviction right there. You ever said a cuss word? You ever been drunk? You ever been drunk? You ever cheat? Ever lust? You ever looked at pornography? I mean, just, what, just come up with a, whatever the most embarrassing sin you might have in your life is back there somewhere, you've hidden it away, and you don't want to talk about that. Whatever that is, now, now read verse 3. Abraham was a pagan. Verse 3. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and I and made his offspring many and I gave him Isaac. Verse 3, keep looking, the, the words. God says, I took that that I led, it literally reads, I caused him to go. I did it. Not Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. This is, this is the gospel of grace. You see, the gospel of grace demolishes whatever's back there. Just come up with your very worst, whatever's back there, God demolishes it. This is a movement of grace and what we believe as Christians, not that we start doing things hoping God will love us. We understand that we are abject sinners under the wrath of God. And the gospel says God in grace sent Jesus, his son, who's fully God and fully man, lived perfectly, goes to the cross. Why the cross? There at the cross, the judgment of God falls on sin. He takes wrath, takes our sin, we receive grace and forgiveness and love and demolishes your past. That's what grace does. Grace demolishes the bad past. Maybe that's not enough for you. Let me give you something else you'll see in verse 4. Here's the second thing about grace. Number 2, grace, grace defies logic. You've got to read verse 4 carefully. Remember Jacob and Esau, and, and so they're being brought up. Let me show you how grace works. And it defies logic. Think about those two men, Jacob and Esau. Verse 4 makes no sense to me. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob, the chosen one, Jacob who would be the, the fulfilling of the promise, I sent him down to Egypt. That doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you read in the light of Romans, when Paul quotes the, I mean, when Paul quotes the prophet and says about Jacob and Esau, it's Jacob I love and it's Esau that I hate. Here are these brothers, one is good and one is bad. One drives his parents crazy, brings terrible girls home, He's rash, bad decisions. He is not a good guy. Esau, and yet in the text, Esau gets the blessing. And Jacob, the one that's supposed to be chosen and good, Jacob goes down to slavery. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to us. We believe you ought to work hard for a good day's wage, 
that you ought to do unto others, that you treat people like you want to be treated. We believe in fair play and justice, and grace has nothing to do with that. Grace is a product of God's wrath and His love meeting at the cross. We want equity. We want equity. I've been a good person. I've been nice. Why can't, why aren't things working out like I want them to? We want something that made sense. And it's good for us to be reminded that grace doesn't make sense. That's what makes it grace. It's, it's mystifying. Go and read the book of, uh, the book of Hebrews. I'll be preaching through Hebrews in January, January of 2022. We're going to go all the way through Hebrews, get 38 sermons lined out, take us all the way the whole year of 2022. By October, you'll be in Hebrews 11. It's the chapter that has all of the great uh, players of faith. And it starts out talking about all the victories that God gave through faith. People believed and they won victory. You get to the end of Hebrews 11 and people believed and they were martyred. Read the book of Acts. Peter's put in jail. James is put in jail. The church prays. Peter is let out. James is martyred. Reach all the way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. And look at those two brothers standing there. A good one named Abel and a bad one named Cain. And the bad one kills the good one. It, it's an absolute mystery to how that works. But here's God doing it putting his people down there because he's going to go get them. Here's a painful mystery, grace is. But, but, but grace, we keep looking at it, it's got to overcome the bitterness that we sometimes feel. Grace has got to work us through the questions. We've got to press through the questions and be okay with God doing this. Because what does grace do? I'll give you a third thing to consider. Number three, grace is going to dwell on deliverance. This is what grace is about. Let me show you where I get that. You'll go to verse 5. Let's read verse 5, and I want you to listen to the, um, the verbs in verse 5. Listen to who's doing it, and listen to what God is doing. I'm reading to you verse 5. <clears throat> and I, this is God speaking, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward, I brought you out. You, you know what you can do with verse 5? Verse 5 is nothing more than a summary of the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. You go and read those 12 chapters. There you have from Moses to when they come out of slavery. And there you have all of the plagues. You have God doing these miraculous works. And right here in verse 5, it's been condensed down. And it gives us three statements. Look how it's expressed in verse 5. I sent, I plagued, I brought you out. Maybe think of, um, of Julius Caesar. Vini, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. The picture here is, is God acting. God saving. This is God-centered. This is what causes us to worship. This is this is God-focused. Here is the model for our understanding of how God saves us in Christ. 
Here's the framework of the gospel. Here is us coming to God with nothing to offer and him loving us through Christ. Here is the cross. This is not just the framework for the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, look, this is the framework for believers. This is your own sanctification. There's a reason you're going through what you're going through. It, it, it's that God will deliver. God put Jacob in Egypt, giving us a picture of God saving people. God will heal. God will forgive you. Look, we, we have baptism. It's a, it's a tangible picture of what God does. God will wash you. You've, maybe you've been through, walked through abuse of some kind, physical or emotional. God will restore you. God will use you. Too often you've filled your mind with so many other things, and I just want to take this passage and, and have our minds filled with the good grace of God because a mind filled with grace starts to be occupied with God. What does grace do? Grace deals with a bad past. Grace, grace defies logic. Grace dwells on deliverance. This is what God does. God is in the delivering business. Let me give you something else to consider about grace. Here's a fourth thing that you might want to write down. And that is that grace determines responsibility. Grace, you might even say, leads or determines responsibility, leads to responsibility. I want you to see the shift in the pronouns. So verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, God is speaking of the people behind you, your fathers, everybody the last generation. In verse 5, the pronouns change. And read verses 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and covered them and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. You see the shift? Think about their audience now. Who's listening to this little speech? The primary audience, the men and women that made it through the wilderness, but they didn't start out in the wilderness as men and women. Go back and read. They, they were too young to be punished. Moses and everybody else fell in the wilderness. There were people that were... Kids that were too young to know, they didn't do the wrong things like the adults. They didn't rebel, and God spared their life, but now they've grown up. And it's the next generation being spoken to here that is to take up responsibility. That, that have gone into adulthood. You're 20, 21, 25 years old, 27, 30, 31 years old. You are now part of being responsible. You're in the congregation to lead and worship and to be discipled and disciple and to give and to be an ongoing part. Look, last week, 
Last week was our church's birthday. I did not remember that, our church historian, so kindly let me know you missed the church's birthday. It, it was also my wife's birthday. Um, I didn't forget her birthday. 66, 66 years old, Hickory Grove Baptist Church, 66 years old, once a week. It averages out one every six days. We have a funeral here. 66 years, men and women have come and joined and been a part and been faithful and given and built and held it up and given us a congregation and increasingly so many of those are going on to their reward. By God's grace, he's put within our church young couples that are joining and young singles that are joining. Each month we have our membership class. There are a lot of you grown up here. You now are a part of leading in the congregation. You look up in the choir and you see young faces up there singing. Time for many of us to take some of that responsibility. Living in the grace that God has given, it, it, it creates this, this desire to not only have the privilege, but the responsibility. God's grace to us as a father has made us responsible as children. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel the, the grace has given you in the gospel that now you, you live under that with great joy and take joy in that? Let me tell you something else about grace. You'll see number seven. It's tucked away there at the very end. I almost ran by it, but I think it's important to, to notice. Here's the fifth thing to see, and that is that grace does not waste the wilderness. In fact, I'd like to personalize it to you. Grace doesn't waste your wilderness. See it at the very end of verse 7? Notice, uh, and, and remember, we believe in the narrative of Scripture. God puts His Word here for a reason. This sentence is here in verse 7. Maybe it's there for you. And at the very end of verse 7, God recognizes and says, you lived in the wilderness a long time. You see it at the very end? You were there for a reason. Nobody likes to live in the wilderness. God's people complained in the wilderness. But there in the wilderness is where we learn it. Provision. Something I was flipping through those journals Thursday. And just God would just provide. Sometimes God has us in the wilderness to refine. Maybe we were too prideful and uses the wilderness to break us down. Maybe there in the wilderness... It takes a little while to heal. But God has you there as a readjusting your life. Maybe, maybe it's just you learning dependence. You're not as strong as you thought you were. Maybe it's God having you there to strip things away so that you might actually take joy in God. Brother or sister in Christ, it is time now to have the joy of the Lord restored to your heart. On this day, today, we need to close one chapter and be done with it. Let's open another. God is not wasting what you've been through. 
He wastes nothing and by grace, we need to move forward. Because grace is there. I'll give you a sixth thing. Grace, grace is deflecting evil and turning it to good. Deflecting, I don't know how else to say it, so that's how I said it. Grace deflects evil and turns it to good. You, you, you can read it in verse 8. When you read verse 8, is about protection. And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, God is reminding them of the story found in Numbers 21. There's a king named Balak, the king of Moab, and he hires this false prophet named Balaam. Go read about Balaam's donkey. But Balaam, he's hired to say terrible things about God's people. And here's what God is saying. Look, Balaam tried to say terrible things about you. And what I did was I took that and turned it, and all he could actually do was bless you. Isn't that, isn't that what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Isn't that what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 actually is? That for those that love God, he's working even that terrible. I, I stood out there yesterday at the abortion clinic at Latrobe and had the march and beforehand a 40-minute service of worship and testimony. And each testimony was a testimony of God's grace. One of the ladies stood up and talked about how she, was, she came to the clinic to have an abortion but heard the gospel and had read one of the tracts and was convicted, didn't do it, and gave her life to Christ. And, and it was a wonderful testimony of God's work. Some of the testimonies, though, are testimonies of, of women that actually have had abortions. And giving testimony of being convicted, repenting, and putting their faith and the, the wonder of forgiveness... What is your very worst day? I want you to get in your mind your worst day and the scene of your worst day is the backdrop of God's most amazing work in your life. We go to the cross of Jesus and there the worst day in the universe God's wrath fell on the Son of God, Jesus. Becomes the very best day for us when we are adopted as sons and daughters through the grace given to us at the cross. I want to fill your mind, I want God to fill your mind with grace because a mind that's filled with grace is occupied with God. I'd like to end with one, one last note and We'll look toward the future with this, and this is number seven, and that is that grace, grace must define our future. Not what you've been through, not the terrible pain, that, that is not allowed to define your future. It is grace. You are a trophy, not of your sin, you are a trophy of grace. Grace defines our future. You, you can see it in verse 11. Verse 11, there's an impressive, uh, you can see all the ites in verse 11, there's an impressive list of enemies Verse 12, it's a great verse. God says, I sent the hornet to chase out the enemies before you. Uh, it's a wonderful picture, honestly. It's, it's terror. Anybody that has ever run over a yellow jacket's nest with a lawnmower, you know what this looks like. People are running. And so here's what God said. This is what I did to you. The hornet was after them. And then you get to verse 13, and, and the Lord settles them down. 
and says, don't forget grace. Look what it says in verse 13. Look how it's structured. You're living in land that you didn't labor to get. In cities that you didn't build. Right now, you're eating fruit you didn't plant. And what you have here is a reminder. It's a reminder of what God has done, but it's also an invitation to trust him for the future. Look, I've brought you this far. Now, by God's grace, let's move into tomorrow. You see, a mind that is filled with grace will be occupied with God. With that in mind this morning, I want you to join me in a moment of prayer and thought. Your heads bowed this morning. Go with me and listen to a couple of questions I'd like to put before you so they'll be fresh on your mind. As you pray, answer the questions in your mind. What are you preoccupied with? What has you? What hurt needs healing? What sin needs forgiving? What practice? What are you doing that you need to stop doing? What practice needs ending? Brothers and sisters in Christ, what, what discipline that you used to do, what discipline needs restoring? action. What steps need taking? In a moment, we're going to sing and worship. Started the service worshiping, we'll end it worshiping. That's a good time for you to come and let a pastor pray with you, pray for you. Or maybe right now, you know you live under condemnation. You need to come to Jesus. Put your faith in the crucified, resurrected Savior. So when we worship, closing out this morning, if you'd like to, you come. And let's pray you through this. Father, for grace, we're thankful. And I pray by the Spirit you would apply it to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.